I think it's both the data and the planning. I think it's important for the staff to know the level of planning that's gone into preparing for a resurgence. And the data helps uh, them know what we're, what we're anticipating. But I think more importantly, I think they hopefully find more sense of uh, calm knowing that, you know, A, it's not gonna be like it was before, and B, we are so much better prepared. Welcome to Northwell Health's 20-Minute Health Talk, where some of the brightest minds in healthcare help us break down the latest news and developments. I'm Rob Hoyle, joining you virtually. And back in the studio is my co-host, Chris Gazuski, and our very special guest, Dr. John D'Angelo, who is the Chief of Integrated Operations for Northwell Health. Northwell Health has been using data to stay a step ahead of the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. D'Angelo, tell us how you're using data and technology to kind of win this battle against COVID-19. Thanks. Uh, it's been very helpful. What we've learned through retrospectively looking at the experience back in the spring uh, was that we saw volumes of certain types of disease, certain types of chief complaints, much higher than any other flu season uh, prior. And looking at the pattern of presentations, the pattern of uh, complaints, the pattern of diagnoses, uh, it allowed us to kind of create triggers uh, early on, you know, after the first wave that we would watch daily and uh, get alerted to, um, you know, an unusual spike in that type of activity. In addition, um, it's been really helpful compared to the first wave of the pandemic where we really didn't have testing uh, for the first three or four weeks. It was very limited if everybody remembers. And now testing is widely available. So having access to positivity rates, absolute number of positive tests by zip code, by county, uh, how that relates to our hospital volume, our urgent care volumes. It's been really helpful kind of putting all of that data together. It's not one specific piece of information, but it's the intelligence you gather from looking at all these variables that's been um, very helpful for us in uh, being one step ahead of of the curve that's coming yeah. we're in now. Positivity has certainly been rising here in New York. What is uh, what is our data shown? So... The interesting thing is it's exactly what we're hearing from the governor and others is that, you know, we know the events that have led to more social gatherings and potentially breakdown in, in you know, the distancing and other things that we've been practicing. And it's interesting. It was about six days after Halloween is when all of a sudden we saw the positivity rates and the cases start to spike up. We were pretty steady all through the summer. One uh, to two percent positivity rate in our lab, uh, about three to 4% positivity rate of all the patients presenting to our emergency departments. And then from that early November week on up, we just have had a steady climb uh, and then a little bit of a plateau and then a peak again about five, six days after Thanksgiving and so forth. So we're seeing a, an uptick now again, being five, six days after the uh, Christmas holidays. And we're really anticipating that we're going to peak sometime mid-January and then hopefully uh, be on a down curve. And the combination of uh, what we're seeing in the trends and the hopes around vaccinations that are, are going around. Um, I'm hoping we're, we're on the other side of this hill no later than mid-January. The data helped us predict the second surge. How does that help clinicians and administrators? How does it help everyone basically at Northwell Health in doing their jobs? Yeah, the biggest reason you want to have as much advanced warning as possible is because there's so many moving parts on how you manage the surge. You have to make sure you you don't know where it's going to be. So last time it was Queens, Forest Hills, Valley Stream, those areas we got hit the hardest. Uh, this time around it was Staten Island initially was the area we hit the hardest. And we're seeing 
high rates now in Suffolk compared to, let's say, Manhattan. So the data helps us understand where we need to react. And it's a, it's a balancing act. There's many levers. There's uh, space, staffing, equipment, and supplies. The equipment and supplies piece of the equation, we are very well ahead of. You know, Unlike the first time when we got hit really hard and really fast, and no one anticipated the level of, of uh, volume of disease and patients we would be dealing with, uh, the procurement people were scrambling and did an amazing job making sure we had enough protective equipment for our employees, number of events we needed, but it was a, a race. It, we were building that plane while we were flying it. Um, we've had now time to prepare, so we are well prepared in the equipment and supply area. So then the next step is where is that surge going to be? Is it everywhere? Is it one isolated area? What are the bed capacity uh uh, what's the bed capacity and the surge capacity in the individual hospitals and in the individual regions? Um, and then where are the staff that we're going to tap into should there be a significant rise in demand um, in the various regions? So being able to predict where things are going by hospital and by region is very key to our ability to respond. Why mid-January? Is that because of New Year's Eve? Uh, I think it's just basically looking at the trends right now, looking at the impact of the various holidays I mentioned, including New Year's Eve, you know, an upcoming, and then um, uh, just the uh, the pattern. We've also built a, a fun predictive tool that's you know uh, based on the number of admissions and discharges a day of COVID that Dr. Eric Cruzan had created, and we didn't know how good it was going to be, and we're finding that we're about three to five percent accurate when we predict like five days out with this tool. So we look at it every day. I don't know if I would trust it two weeks out. Um, although if you if you follow that tool, it says the first week in January. So, but uh, my bet's on the second week of January. I think it's it's going to convalesce about two weeks after New Year's. So, are we looking at a prolonged peak, or is this going to be just a, one of those you know peaks and valley? Yeah, and I think it'll be um, flatter than the last time. The last time it went up so fast. I mean, we went from like our first patient was March fifth. We had our maximum. Uh, volume on April 1st. So we went from like no COVID patients to 3,400 COVID patients in our hospitals in that three-week period. Uh, I think the curve will be a lot lower, so we're not going to be anywhere near that volume. Uh, we're currently at about 1,100 COVID patients. Uh, we're kind of predicting we're going to peak somewhere between 14 and 1,600. Um, and I think it'll be a flatter hill, um, but it will be a little bit more sustained. So I think you'll see it come up and then stay a little steady and then start to come down. It won't be as uh, as sharp of a you know, distribution we saw last time. So in essence, this is our second surge we're seeing. This is our second surge. Yeah. Dr. D'Angelo, how does this data help staff react to everything that's going on? Does it also give them a little bit of hope knowing what to expect? And how does it help them just in their everyday jobs be able to deal with what's going on? I think it's both the data and the planning. I think it's important for the staff to know the level of planning that's gone into preparing for a resurgence. And the data helps us monitor um, where, what point uh, of action is needed, you know, depending on where we're at, where we think we're going. So I think the staff, hopefully, you know, everyone's tired. It's been a long year. Uh, the spring was very taxing. Um, and, um, and we realize that. And our staff is very resilient. Uh, but I, I'm hoping that they take um, some sort of sense of, um, you know, comfort in knowing that, you know, we do not anticipate the things I mentioned earlier, we're not anticipating PPE troubles or, you know, we know we have the staffing models in place and the the space that we will grow into should we be needed as well, you know, uh, delineated. So I think the data helps uh, them know that, you know, 
what we're what we're anticipating. But I think more importantly, I think they hopefully find more more uh, sense of uh, calm, knowing that you know, a it's not going to be like it was before, and b we are so much better prepared. I mean, nobody was prepared in the spring for what we were dealing with. Yeah, and not to get too far off topic, and I know we've used surveillance and and data, you know, for the flu. I right. think it was a couple of years ago we had that big tool built. Um, can this be used and for other illnesses? As we like, are these still some of the le- lessons that we're learning and how we can uh, adapt it to to whatever's to come ahead? Yeah, I think you can build like biosurveillance uh, tools based on the same methodology, and it's not much different than the flu surveillance. It's just we're looking for a different you know, uh, compilation of different diagnosis or chief complaints that prove to be a uh, possible possibility of being COVID. But um, the same level of surveillance for high volume uh, presentations can be applied to almost anything. And we do anticipate um, taking a lot of the lessons learned in surveillance, in um, how we leverage uh, real-time information to understand where our pressure points are in the hospitals or in the health system to be more um, proactive and, and, you know, not retrospectively, you know, just critiquing what went wrong, but actually having real-time insight into the current state is critical. And that was one of the other key investments in preparing for the resurgence. So we have, let's say, for example, teletracking, which is our bedboard technology. Uh, Ten of our hospitals had no bedboard technology. Teletracking was not, you know, they weren't on the roadmap yet for teletracking to be installed. The system invested on fast tracking all 10 of those sites uh, going live in a two-month period, three-month period. So now as of December 21st, we now have the foundation of an electronic bed board installed in every hospital. Maybe not the full functionality, but just since that investment, now I have real-time access into every single bed in every single hospital. So in addition to like what's coming down the, down the line, it's nice to know, like, you know, I don't have to wait for a once a day report on what the census is in every hospital to understand if they're in trouble or not. We can use now real-time data. I can tell you down to the minute how many patients are in what type of beds, where there's availability, where we have capacity. So if site A is overwhelmed, we have space at site B to start moving patients. So the uh, the investment in, in the technology and the use of the data more real-time is what's critical. Is it surprising to you how well that worked and how well it came together? Yeah, well, um, I'm not surprised. How, it's surprising to me how quickly we were able to get it done. The folks in the OCI did an amazing job of making this a priority. And, you know, rolling something out to 10 hospitals, which would normally take years, took months. And that's one of the lessons learned from, from COVID. There were, there's many examples. In about a week-long period during the first wave, we realized there was going to be tons of people that were going to have COVID tests once they were available, and they needed their results. Normally, in the emergency department, we call people when their result is positive or there's some change in care, but this now, 100% of people would need a phone call. The number of tests we were anticipating doing was going to be overwhelming. So we had no solution for this, and in a week or so, people were able to come together, and now with consent, we are texting people or emailing people their results. If they don't answer the text, they go on a list app application so the call center knows they didn't confirm receipt and they get a phone call. And we pretty much automated the management of thousands of results a day, sparing the frontline staff from having to make those phone calls. And again, it's just another example of when you're under stress and you're in a crisis um, and you move a lot of the red tape aside, we can get a lot of great things done. Yeah, that seems to be some, sometimes your best work comes out, right? Right. You're also senior vice president of emergency medicine here. Um, 
What was it like from that perspective going through the spring? It was um, it was a little bit surreal. I mean, our our EDs were uh, prepared. Uh, everyone was equally, you know, nervous about you know what this meant because it was a new disease. Um, we had to constantly evolve our protocols, our guidelines because the it was not as unknown. So the CDC criteria were changing every other day. The potential treatment options were changing. Things that were thought to be effective were then later proven not to be effective. So it was re- it really was um, a very um, uh, evolving process that probably made people uncomfortable, but the team did great and they responded. And uh, I think everybody's really proud about how we reacted and uh, how we handled the situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Rob. Okay. John, you talk about Northwell Health, you know, the 10 different hospitals that got on board with this data. Uh, Obviously, Northwell Health is a a large health system, but there's so many other hospitals and health systems and so many other organizations that are battling this um, pandemic. Did we partner uh, with other um, organizations and collaborate with this this new data and and how we predict things? and, and, And was it helpful to others as well as their input helpful to us? Yeah, in many different ways. I know uh, you guys know that we've, you know, had folks come and help during the first wave from a staffing perspective, and we've reciprocated, and we've had staff move to other health systems that are in hot spots in the country. But in based on the, on, in line with the topic we're talking about today, um, we have um, shared our data methodology with Greater Hospital New York, with other hospitals. We uh, through Jeff Kraut's leadership and working with the folks at the state level seeing if we can obtain the similar information that we use in our predictive modeling tools um, and our surveillance tools and pulling that out of the HIE so we can do surveillance for the region, not just for our hospitals. Um, We do access all the data from the state on positivity testing. So it's not just our testing we're looking at. And that gives us really good information down to the zip code level of understanding where hotspots are emerging. Uh, So there's been a lot of collaboration. Um, Lately, we've been working a lot with other hospitals in the region on their surge plans, on creating um, transfer agreements so that if any hospital in the region, even if it's not a Northwell hospital, becomes overwhelmed, that we can put into effect what we call load balancing and helping them decant patients if they have more than they can handle. So there's been a lot of collaboration with uh, outside the system as well. I think all of these, yeah, then the vaccine and all this other work that's being done, I think that'll hopefully get us to that that next space with everything you've been through and everything that's hap- about to happen now, you know, what are the things that are keeping you up at night? I think, um, the, the most important that I, I no longer lose sleep over PPE and the things that kept me up at night, the first wave, I think right now it's, it's, a uh, um, there's a lot of, uh, things we're trying to balance. You know, we want to maintain our operations as normally as possible. We don't want to have to cancel everything on patients and on our hospitals again. So I think, very frequently I'm playing, uh, with, with on my computer and in my head, the numbers at every hospital that day, that moment, and trying to think what the next best move is, where's the next best location for us to surge into, uh, you know, how does that work with our staffing availability? So I think it's just this very complicated, like almost like three dimensional type chess game. And you're trying to be two or three steps ahead. Um, and it's not just any one variable. It's not just space, it's space, it's staffing, it's, where the volume is, where the patients are presenting. It's that mix of medical surge versus ICU. So there's all these different variables and you're trying to just balance that. And it's, um, we're in a really good position, but it's, it's what I think about quite a bit. And that's what I kind of think about when I'm going to bed at night. We also do another segment called the top three. 
So what we want to do is ask you, what do you what do you feel as if the the top three impacting this situation is? All right. So what's impacting our current situation? I think it's it's um, there's there's going to be continued spread because uh, you know we don't have that herd immunity yet. I think the vaccination uh, uh, program is going to be very helpful in getting us there, but it's going to take months. I think that ties to the fact that people are tired, people are breaking down, they're seeing, you know, they're having those small gatherings and that's why we're going to continue to see a little festering of, of this and a little growth of this. Um, but I, I'm very, I'm very, I'm very inspired or very hopeful with the vaccination uh, project is going to be very successful. Um, the other things I think that I take out of this that are really inspiring is, again, I got to go back to the grit and the resiliency of our staff. Um, and I think um, we haven't had to do so yet. But in the first wave, we called upon people to come from ambulatory to hospital, to work in ICUs, to do all sorts of things that were out of their comfort zone. And people stood up uh, and did it. And I still feel that that the culture of Northwell uh, and the, the dedication of the staff is something to be very proud of. And that gets us through all these types of situations. Anything else impacting the field? Um, I mean, those are those are main things. I think uh, the people that are doing all the work on the vaccine uh, through our employee health, uh, HR, uh, the pharmacy uh, folks, it's a tremendous undertaking. And you guys know all the details. I mean, the different vaccines with the different storage and handling requirements and two doses. And you got to make sure the dose you get the second dose is the same you know brand you got the first dose of. And uh, they've done a I mean, we've been talking about vaccines now for four months prior to it being available and planning hours a day on that, on all of these things, the prioritization matrix and how we're going to distribute, how we're going to track, how we're going to notify uh, uh, the staff. And um, it's all, all that planning is really coming into play and things are moving really smoothly. And I mean, last I looked, I think we vaccinated over 15, 16,000 employees already since we started a week and a half ago. And it's, um, it's, uh, it's really promising. I think the bigger challenge is yet to come when the vaccination program, uh, which I, I think it's, it, it can't come soon enough, but when it starts to roll out to the to the public and the community vaccination, that is a tremendous effort. Looking at the number of people that live in our in our counties and in the areas we serve, so uh, the employee piece is moving really smooth, and uh, I, I believe the overall general public one will as well. But there's so many more moving parts in that arena. All right, as we're coming to a close here on Twenty Minute Health Talk, we always like to end each show on a positive note. So Dr. D'Angelo, what gives you hope? What gives you optimism moving forward? Yeah, I think I have a lot of hope around this being our, our second and not as severe of a wave. Um, and that at the other side of that hill, um, we're going to hopefully be, you know, soon looking in the rearview mirror, thanks to the vaccination program, as well as, um, you know, everybody staying diligent with all the the measures that have been put into place that helped us get to where we are today. I mean, I think our, our positivity rate, although it's on the rise, is still so much lower than it could be, uh, especially in an area so dense in population as, you know, as we live in in this area. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, I just have nothing but um, positive thoughts about the future. I think we're going to be through this by the end of January. It's only going to get better from there. And the vaccinations are going to bring us to the end of the tunnel. So I'm very hopeful. Just uh, on a personal note, what, uh, what's the first thing you're going to do when this is all over? Uh, according to my wife, we're going to travel because we've already canceled like three or four trips. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll rebook one of those trips and uh, probably get out of here for a while. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. D'Angelo, for joining us on 20-Minute Health Talk. And for all the listeners who tuned in, thank you so much. As we move into 2021, everyone have a great week, have a great month, and let's have a great year. Remember to stay safe. Get more insights from some of the leading voices in healthcare today. Subscribe to 20-Minute Health Talk on Podbean, Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.